Welcome to the Writer's Right Podcast, the show where every writer has the right to speak their mind. I'm your host, Joshua Howe, and as always, we'll be giving attention to the last thing my guest has written and the writing process. Today's guest is a writer for The Score, one part of Pound the Rock, and uh, one of the best follows on Raptors Twitter. It's Joe Wolfond. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I'm really good. Uh, it's really hot outside, but uh, other than that, yeah. um, doing pretty well. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's getting pretty oppressive. It was like late to start, but um, I'm, I'm missing like those really frigid June days that I was bemoaning at the time. Yeah, I don't even remember May. If it just feels like we went from like cold to extremely humid. Yeah, there was no spring this year at all, which is <laughs> I love spring. It's like my favorite season. It just didn't happen. Yeah, I'm a temperate uh, kind of guy. I like the like 15s and 17s, and then you get to the extremes, and I just I'm dying either way. So I'm complaining like 90 percent of the time in Canada, <laughs> which is you know the worst. Yeah, well, I mean, like I I, I like to play tennis a lot, and it's so like that's my my sweet spot is like the 15 to 17 kind of days, mm-hmm. and right now it's just untenable. Like I can't yeah. I can't do it. Yeah, I can't even imagine trying to play anything outside right now. Um, yeah. How are you feeling without uh, any, like, I guess, real, real in quotation marks, uh, NBA hoops on right now? Is it weird because of how long the Raptors season went this year? Um, I guess, like, usually this time of year I'm, I'm kind of having withdrawal. I, I'm really yeah. enjoying it right now just because <laughs> it was such a long season and so physically and emotionally draining. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, yeah, it's just been a nice break. Um and obviously there's still, you know, free agency was crazy. Like there's still a ton of stuff to write about and a ton of work to be done, but it's just, everything's a little bit less time sensitive. Uh, the pressure just kind of ramps down a bit. And so it's been nice and like a little bit relaxing just to, to not have so much going on and like so much, uh, like kind of pressure and intensity every day. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for now I'm I'm kind of enjoying it, but like ask me in a few weeks, I'm sure I'll feel differently. <laughs> yeah, some part of me wishes the Raptors summer league was a little later this year, but I guess there's FIBA, so there's a lot of basketball going on this summer still. Um, but uh, I wanted to I wanted to bring you on the podcast because you wrote a piece uh, for the Score called Kawhi Leonard leaves the Raptors in a better place than he found them. And uh, I really enjoyed that. I really enjoy pretty much everything you write. Um, and I think most people should be reading you, especially if they're Raptors fans. But uh, I definitely wanted to talk about this because there's been so much discussion about Kawhi leaving and, uh, you know, enjoying what he gave us. And some people are upset and some people aren't. And there's just feelings all over the place. And I guess I just kind of wanted to started, uh, wanted to get started with your general impressions on the year as a whole. Like, how was the ride for you? from the regular season to the title? Uh, like, what's the thing that you're going to remember most about this season that kind of sticks out? Um, I just, everything about it just felt surreal. And I think the fact that it now is this one-year sort of moment in time is just going to make it feel all the more surreal in hindsight. Like, did that really happen? Um, and, like, all the while, I like, and I wrote about this in the piece, it's kind of, like, Everyone, every once in a while, just kind of dropped that Kawhi Leonard is a Toronto Raptor mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> you know, it was like a, to remind ourselves like that this is really happening. And, uh, you know, it's just like this sort of ongoing feeling of incredulousness about the whole thing. 
And and that was just sort of like the overriding feeling the whole time, because I think for so many of us who, who have like spent, you know, a large portion of our lives following and rooting for this team, it just felt like it was never going to happen for us. And I guess like that's probably how it feels for any fan base or anyone in any situation when they want something to happen. And for the longest time, it doesn't like I'm sure that that feeling is is pretty ubiquitous, like just you know, eventually getting to a point where you think like, it's just not going to happen. Um, and then, and then it did. And, uh, I think a lot of time it was just like not knowing what to feel. Um, there was the regular season I, f- I found was actually like less enjoyable than past regular seasons because yeah. the expectations were so different. Um, and the, the feeling in the past had been sort of breaking through those expectations and like the Raptors being this team that nobody really ever believed in. And every year they would come in and like their projected win total was like in the mid forties and they would find a way to win 50 plus games. And there was like, there was really a great joy in that, I think. And this season it was just, the expectations were so high and it always just felt like it was finals or bust basically. And it was more stressful for that reason. And then also obviously there's like wise free agency, to think about and like just picking apart like every little bit of of footage and like any clue any hint um that he might be leaning towards staying uh it just it was kind of just this perfect storm and um you know the the i guess the feeling of like finally actually getting to the finals even more so in a weird way than winning the title itself it was just like i can't believe they actually got there you know like Mm -hmm. and um, and then the feeling you're left with too is like now now that we know that it was only a one year thing, it just it makes it that much more incredible in hindsight because they really did only have that one year to make it happen, yeah. and they made it happen. Like they won the championship. Um, so yeah, that's sort of as as eloquently I guess as I can put it. Yeah, there were even moments during the playoff run itself, like you know when playoff Kawhi was here and everything, and. Uh, but there were like a bunch of moments where it looked like maybe the Raptors would fall apart and that this whole storybook run would come to an end. And, and it really, at least for me, I, I found this regular season a little bit frustrating just because of, um, yeah, I think some of the expectations were a bit heavier. The season prior was probably my favorite regular season as, as a fan to watch just because uh, none of those expectations were there prior and they exceeded them. And I, I think that there was too much expectation put on them maybe against a team like Cleveland. And then this team had all those, rightfully so, with Kawhi Leonard on the team. And there were all the injuries and all the, you know, the topics of discussion about not only about Kawhi himself, but about whether or not um, he was going to stay or he was going to leave. And, in, you know, just everything, chemistry, all that stuff going on. Nick Nurse as a rookie head coach, um, it was a lot. And uh, so I, I found it a little more draining. And the playoffs... Um, a little more invigorating, but there were a bunch of moments, even game one against Orlando, where they lose the first game in the first round, and everyone says, well, it's the same old Raptors, it doesn't matter if Kawhi's on the team, and then you move to Philly, uh, you end up in a game seven, can you win that game, you're, you're down 2-0 against Milwaukee, and you're going to overtime in game three, so many moments where, you know, just... That team really could have fallen apart, could have folded, and they didn't. And it's kind of just a miracle because that's not the history of the franchise. 
Yeah. Um, no, I mean, that was totally my feeling, too. And then, the, you know, the longer the playoffs went on, I think the, the calmer that I felt in those yeah. really stressful moments, uh, just because they had proved time and again that they weren't going to fold, they weren't going to break. And just like the feeling of having Kawhi on the roster is just so like utterly calming. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I mean, you saw that reflected, I think, in the players themselves. Yeah. But certainly as a fan, like it made all those moments that have been so anxiety inducing in the past. And not that there like wasn't anxiety, but uh, mm-hmm. I think it was just mitigated by the fact that um, there was like an all time player uh, on the roster who was in the midst of like an all time playoff run. And it just gave you supreme confidence that they were going to be OK. Yeah. And um, you mentioned in the article about how Masai had to make the decision of going from very good to great with the Kawhi Leonard deal. And I think, I think in general, the risk, if you want to call it that, it gets a little overblown when talking about the Kawhi Leonard deal, because there was always Masai already had a plan set in place that the Kawhi trade really just uh, accelerated, which was going to be eventually going to a rebuild. If the DeRozan had stayed on the team, they were still headed towards a rebuild. Uh, a lot of contracts were on the same timeline, but, you know, they made that deal despite the risk, whatever the big risk was that Kawhi could leave. And he ultimately did. And so they're headed back in that direction now. And I'm kind of curious because there's been a lot of talk about this sort of thing lately. Um, what do you think about the Raptors' chances, say, like in the summer of 2021, when teams really want to have cap space um, to land a free agent based on the Kawhi experience? Like, does what happened hurt the team's chances because Kawhi left? because they did everything and couldn't retain him because the pull to go home for him was too strong and they have this reputation of having a hard time to get getting free agents in the past is is this a how does this affect the team if at all going forward i think it affects them positively like i i sort of understand the sentiment it's like if you do everything right you literally win a championship and it's still not enough to keep the guy around like mm-hmm. there's you know i can understand the sort of element of fatalism uh that can come with that but i think you know Kawhi was always going to do what Kawhi was going to do and like i think he is quite unique in that regard and i i also feel like maybe the 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 sort of attitudes of players toward their own agency has changed and and we have to consider that as well but i think you know if you are a free agent in 2021 and you don't necessarily have your heart dead set on any one location and you're looking around the league for, you know, a new home and you're looking for a team that has cap space and has potential. And you know, you know, you want to end up in a place where you're going to have a chance to compete, but you're also going to be surrounded by people who are really good at their jobs. You know, whether it's the coaching staff or the medical staff or the front office, I don't think the Raptors could have done any more to sort of bolster their image in the rest of the league's eyes than they did this season. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think it's a boon for the Raptors. I mean, they did put on a full display of the culture of winning that they've built um, over the past several years. And, you know, Masai, uh, how his drive to succeed and win a title in Toronto was ultimately fulfilled and how the franchise as a whole is willing to compromise with players' desires, like with the load management program that Alex McKechnie had in place this year. So, yeah, I mean, do you think in general this season is is even the positives? Is this like is this a referendum on the franchise at all? Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, I mean, I think, yeah, in a positive way. Um, okay, yeah. I think 
you know, for all the reasons that I, that I just mentioned, I think it is, um, I mean, there was a lot of talk when, when Masai pulled the trigger on that Kawhi trade about, uh, there being a sort of feeling around the league that he had done DeRozan dirty Mm -hmm. and that that was going to affect other players approach to the Raptors in the future. Right. And I just, I kind of thought that was bogus at the time. And I just, I feel that way even more strongly now, like two of the league's, you know, 10 best players just went to the Clippers and that's Mm -hmm. the same team that, that, you know, told Blake Griffin, they wanted him to be a Clipper for life and literally put his face on a shirt with like MLK and Gandhi. And like, (laughs) I don't even know who else. And then traded him like six months later. Like people, I think, have a pretty short memory when it comes to this stuff. And I also think you know everybody understands at this point that you know it's a business. And Mm -hmm. and I think that's you know in a lot of ways why so many of these players are taking their like their own destinies into their hands. Like they they recognize that this whole loyalty bit is not real. And. So, you know, the self-interest goes both ways. I think teams act out of self-interest and and players do too. And I think um, what the Raptors did demonstrate is like, you know, while you are there, like while you're a Toronto Raptor, like you're going to be well taken care of and that organization is going to do whatever it takes to to win. Like they're going to make good decisions. Um, And I think... You know, I, I feel like Messiah's Q rating right now is is pretty high. So yeah, um, if if the season was in any way a referendum on the Raptors, I think it was a referendum in in an extremely positive way. I, I do remember when I can't remember who it was, and I think there were probably a couple more than one. But when Anthony Morrow was one, of them, I okay, can tell yeah, you that. yeah. So there were some guys that tweeted like after the DeRozan trade that no one's going to want to go to Toronto now. And I remember even thinking at the time like. And this was in the wake of the Blake trade, obviously, as well, the Blake Griffin trade. And I just remember thinking that that's, that was crazy because, I mean, it, it, like, people do, like you say, have short memories. And winning changes everything. And all of a sudden, the Raptors are a championship franchise. And they can sell that now forever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I just, no one, and no one except us, maybe, and, and other, you know, and their hardcore fans and media and people like that will remember those things. But pretty much everybody's forgotten about that kind of stuff already. And I'm sure the players have as well. Everything is very fluid in the NBA, I think, more than ever. It's something to keep in, I, I keep in mind even when guys like, hey, not long ago Kyrie Irving said that he was going to stay in Boston. Now Anthony Davis is saying, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a Laker for a long time. And okay, but let's let's actually wait and see, you know? Yeah, 100%. And I, that's sort of why I feel like, I mean, players, they can do whatever they want, but yeah. it just, it, it never seems to go particularly well when, when they make those kind of assurances. Uh, you know, when they talk, I mean, Kawhi, basically a year before everything went down with San Antonio, was talking about wanting to be a spur for life. Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, I think you're better off just not saying stuff like that um, because if the last few years have taught us anything, it's just that stuff changes incredibly quickly. And, um, I think just as a person, you probably want to give yourself some leeway to change your mind because that's how it works. Like we, we change our minds. Uh, we're whimsical beings and, um, you know, how we feel today is not how we're necessarily going to feel tomorrow. So, and I think, you know, if you're a fan and you hear something like that, it's probably best to just take it with a grain of salt for all, for all those reasons. Yeah. 
Are you are you as disheartened as some people are? Some people are like really on the bleak end of it, and some people aren't as much because of they're a very pro player. I'm probably more on that end. But about the moves that are being made this past year, about guys going to big markets and leaving money on the table and winning on the table and seeking out all these peripheral factors like family and business life and stuff. Um, I don't think disheartened would be the right way to put it. I think, I mean, these are just the realities at this point that are facing small market franchises and i wouldn't even lump the raptors in no with those small markets because they're not i mean this is a huge market it's just um that comes i guess with some perceived downsides you know being in a different country being in a colder climate um and you know being in a place where you (laughs) don't get the good cable as some might say um (laughs) You know, your kids have to learn the metric system in school. It's like there, there are still these stigmas attached, even if they're fading, um, that I guess make it more difficult. But uh, I, I just don't think that there's anything that can really be done about that. So I, I almost feel like it's futile, you know, to spend this energy sort of bemoaning it because that's just the reality. Like the, the league has tried to put these safeguards in place. And they just haven't worked, right? Like the Supermax mm-hmm. hasn't worked. No. Nope. Um, it's just like there's only so much you can do um, when you have a league that is driven. You know, the players are the product. And there's, you know, there's only so much you can do to control the decisions they make. And like you try and sort of put these incentives there to almost bribe them to, to stay with their incumbent teams and like keep these smaller market teams relevant. But, you know, at the end of the day, they're they're going to do what they want and if they want to go and play in big markets and they want to go and play in new york or la like i think you just have to make your peace with that and those like it's not like smaller market teams can't succeed we've obviously seen that they can it's just their margin for error is smaller Mm -hmm. and it just becomes doubly important for those franchises to do things right and have people in power who are going to make good decisions and and aren't going to hamstring the franchise for the future yeah, for sure. It's 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 one of the most fascinating things I think going on in the league right now with ever since really LeBron changed things in 2010 with the decision and just how those ripple effects are going and especially with his decision to go to the Lakers where they weren't, you know, even necessarily guaranteed a playoff spot and didn't make the playoffs last last year. It's it's something to I keep thinking about and obviously it's a big topic in the league right now. Um but uh on a more positive note, I guess in terms of the Raptors season and just the, the way it ended and the result and even more than the title, you talk about how there's a greater lasting impact that's, that comes from this and you know that there's proof now that an aspirational franchise can make it, that again, Masai's relentless determination was worthwhile and that basketball is going to continue going upwards and, and onwards in Canada. And we, we even have things like the CEBL just uh, became a thing recently, the Canadian Elite Basketball League focused on Canadian talent. And that, you know, might that in the end really be kind of the lasting legacy of this specific period of basketball? I think so. I mean, you know, if we're, you know, we're even just talking about projecting ahead to like 2021. And I think the impact could very well be felt that summer uh but uh there i just think there are going to be so many ripple effects from like you mentioned like just the growth of basketball in canada and and all the people who watched this playoff run and and you know presumably 
became fans and got hooked and like young kids who might take up basketball as a result and um you know just like the players on the team as well like Kyle Lowry and Marcus All who are mm-hmm. champions now and who I think are going to have Hall of Fame cases when all said and done and that's just going to be a really nice feather in both of their caps and um you know for for the image of the franchise and like everybody who has been part of this run uh in whatever way I think um you know this is going to be something that sticks with them and it's yeah, that's why I said, like, I think, you know, his impact is going to outlast him by an order of magnitude. Uh, it's just for everybody who didn't think that something like this was possible. I mean, like the, the proof is right there. And uh, I think, you know, I, I've compared it sort of to like that Mavericks championship in 2011. And I think that was sort of a not necessarily a blueprint, but just something that like franchises could point to and be like if you were a team that was winning sort of like 50 to 55 games every year and running into roadblocks losing in the second round or just like being good but not good enough they were sort of the example of a team that just persisted didn't blow it up just kind of kept improving along the margins and then everything came together at the right time and i think in a similar way, like the Raptors will be a team like that, that other teams can point to and be like, we can be that. We can do that. We can have, even if it's only for one year, like we can do this and it will be worth it. Uh, because I don't think anybody, I mean, maybe not anybody. Cause I have seen a lot of people ridiculously saying that like the trade was a mistake in hindsight <laughs> because he left, but any sane person I think would say that it was worth it and that yeah. they wouldn't have done anything differently. Yeah, I th- I mean, I'd definitely say so. The whole reason you play the game as an NBA franchise is to win a title, and the Raptors did that. And you talk about, in the piece as well, just both sides held up their end of the bargain. I mean, the Raptors committed fully to Kawhi. They took the year to try and show him why he should stay, and in the course of the year, they won a title with him. They you know, did the load management program, um, obviously had their commitment to winning. Obviously, Masai was doing everything in his power and everyone else. Kawhi did his point, uh, his part, and he gave everything he had on the floor. We watched him get, you know, gimpy multiple times in the playoffs, especially, and and powered through a lot of those games um, on the way to winning a title. And he was really a consummate professional by all accounts, and and came out kind of and was more of himself, I guess, with the media. And in the end, like even in a smaller scale than just that huge impact that came from it, like that's really all you can ask for, right? Yeah, without a doubt, and I think uh, the him coming out of his shell stuff, <clears throat> I, I really didn't want to gloss over that because that to me was just that was so much a part of the thrill. Mm-hmm. He was such a mystery to all of us when he came here, and I think he still is in a lot of ways. But just the fact that by the end of the year, he felt comfortable sort of letting us in, even just a little bit, and you know, showing a little bit of his humanity. <clears throat> and just almost like getting comfortable in his own skin uh, in a place that, you know, by all accounts, he didn't want to be in initially. Uh, he came to, at the very least, he came to appreciate it, I think, and to feel comfortable here. And I thought that was huge, too. You know, I thought it was, you know, if a, a similar type of player were to look at the situation and say, look, like I, like Kawhi didn't seem like a marketable star yeah. when he came to Toronto and I think he leaves Toronto looking very much like a marketable star and somebody who could be marketable by continuing to be himself and I think that meant a lot as well yeah absolutely it's funny to think of 
all the moments that are tied to Toronto Raptors history, because even if he does some of the things he's already done, like he did them with Toronto first, like Boardman gets paid, obviously is from when he was in college, but it became a big deal during the Raptors playoff run. And the laugh is obviously something people are going to remember forever, both the one at the beginning of the season and at the very end, a perfect book, uh, bookend, if you will. Um, all of that stuff is just sort of tied into Raptors lore now. There's a connection with him and the franchise that's just, it's there forever, even if he never comes back. Yeah, and just, you know, even like the playoff run, right? Like uh, he had won a championship in San Antonio and he'd won a finals MVP, but he'd never done that as like the number one option on a team. Mm -hmm. You know, he was effectively a role player on that Spurs team, like a very, very good role player, but he... He was closer to being, you know, like 2015 Andre Iguodala in that finals MVP yeah. than he was to being like he was getting Michael Jordan comps this playoff run. It was a completely different thing. And so, yeah, I think, you know, no matter where he goes or no matter what he does for the rest of his career, like the Raptors are going to be a huge part of his legacy. And, you know, when they show like the montage of him and his like hall of fame induction ceremony they're going to show that shot that he hit against philadelphia and that dunk he had over Giannis. like that's they're going to show him doing that stuff in a raptors uniform and uh that's something that we'll always have yeah one of the things i like about your articles in general and this one too of course is you always seem to touch on everything make sure there's no stone really left unturned and even right after that sort of high um, that just note of that high point you talk about, I mean, there's going to be sadness. Kawhi left. He's a superstar player and fans wanted him to stay. There were the chance of five more years during the parade. Even Kyle Lowry was getting in on it. People wanted him to stay. Of course they did. They got attached and he's gone and he made his decision, which is fine. And, um, but it's part of fandom, right? That, you know, fans are allowed to feel people are allowed to be sad that he's gone. I think, I think, if people are actually angry about it, I think that's a little more rooted in some irrationality and is a little bit much. But I think the sadness is is warranted. You know, if you're sad about it, it's fine. His tenure was brief. That sucks. Um, but again, like, you know, in the end, everything sort of in a way worked out perfectly. Yeah. And if I could offer sort of one silver lining that, you know, I'm sure to the people who are angry or sad, it will do little to assuage them. But like, this it's almost perfect right like he had this one year and everything worked out perfectly mm -hmm. and i <laughs> there's something beautiful and poetic about that and if he had come back on like a five-year max deal there are so many different things that could have gone wrong and so many ways that it could have been tainted you know and like maybe he gets hurt or his contract turns into an albatross or the fan base turns on him for one reason or another it's like now we just get to have this one perfect year and I don't know. I just I, I see something almost romantic about the idea that like we're gonna just look back on that one year and think about how amazing it was, and um, there's nothing that can that can taint it in any way. Yeah, I can only imagine the amount of books that are gonna come out about this season eventually. Like, I, it's so hard to get stuff about Kawhi, but um, I'm sure that's not gonna stop a lot of people because this is really is a very perfect sort of story season really from one end to the other sort of a cinderella run it's pretty cool so do you think when he comes back next season as a clipper he's going to be received well because he should be obviously but do you think he will be yeah i do um i just 
I know there's, there's like all this stuff coming out now about the unreasonable requests reportedly that he had and Uncle Dennis made of like the Raptors front office when mm. they had their free agent meeting and mm-hmm. people are upset about that. And I don't know that that's a great look for the franchise if they're leaking that kind of stuff right now. Yeah. Um, but I just don't think that there's anything at this point that can take away uh, the joy of of that run and like the feeling that we all got to experience. So I think, you know, ultimately that's going to be enough that, you know, they're not, there aren't going to be, there, you know, there'll be some turds in the punch bowl, I'm sure. And some people that do boo, but I think they'll be drowned out by the overwhelming mass of people that will cheer when he comes back. Yeah. I feel like the general perception is that most people are just glad what happened happened, which I think is probably the right way to go about it. And life goes on and that's the way the sports work. The sport works. It's a business. Uh, it's a product that promotes attachment to its players. It's both. Um, there's always going to be that push and pull. But as it pertains to Kawhi, you put it really well at the end of your article saying he was a Toronto Raptor. You know, he was. And in some ways he always will be because he's just attached now to the franchise forever. Um, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So that said, I kind of want to turn to sort of the other, other uh, half of this podcast, which is me talking about writing because... I love writing, and I don't. I feel like writers don't get to talk about that stuff enough necessarily. Everything that goes into the article. Um, so with this one, one of the things I wanted to start with that caught me immediately because I notice these things um, anytime I read something is the lead, and the leads uh, relatively short. It's quick. It's snappy, um, which are my favorite kind of leads. I love the like kind of one-liner leads um, rather than the, you know, the ones that are a little bit thicker, maybe a couple lines, whatever. But do you think, like, are these, uh, you know, more interesting for you to kick off pieces with? Does it matter? Is it just sort of a in-the-moment thing? Is it a flow thing? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, I... I don't really have like any particular kind of lead that I usually write. Like a lot of my leads are actually really long and meandering. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I guess, and and the other thing is like, I very rarely start with my lead. Like that's almost never the first thing that I write. Mm -hmm. Um, My process is very much um, like middle out. (laughs) Oh, interesting. um, Okay. uh, Like I, will have sort of like a kernel of an idea, but more than that, I'll just have like a bunch of micro ideas that I'm trying to sort of string together into a coherent piece. Okay. And, and so usually it's, it's only once I have like a bunch of stuff down that I will get around to trying to figure out how I want to start it. Uh And with this one, actually, um, I don't know if it was the first thing I put down, but I, I wrote that lead like a lot earlier than I usually do write my leads. Uh-huh. Um, because I think, I don't know, I guess it would, it just felt like a little bit more organic. Like it felt more like what, um, like I'm sure I would have had that line in the piece regardless, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right. And I didn't necessarily know initially that that was going to be my lead, but it just felt right, I guess, for that to be how I started because, um, that was sort of, yeah, the, the overarching point that I was going for is like from the start, like we knew that this was possible and I didn't feel like I needed to say a whole lot more than that, uh, to open it up. 
Yeah, and it's it's interesting because it's the similar thing with an ending with this piece that you leave things on a single line. Um, and one of those things, it's, it sticks out for me, like in my own personal writing, one of the things I love to do, it's part of my own personal style and voice, I guess, is leaving single lines, ones that I feel are really important, I will single them out and have them separate from everything else because I want to show the importance of those lines to the reader. I want to emphasize them. Do you actively try to sort of bookend with single lines or is it again just kind of whatever feels right um are these are these things that like are just popping up in your mind when you're when you're writing or or how does that work for you yeah no i do like sometimes I, I will write a line like that that i like and that stands on its own um and you know if i see it like um i'm like uh, like quite visual in my writing too so yeah if I see that line and it's buried in the middle of a paragraph, I do like sometimes try and find a way to pull it out and either put it in like at the end of a shorter graph or just like leave it on its own mm-hmm. because, um, I don't know. I just, yeah, it's, I, I think you put it well when you say like you, you want it to pop and you want it to stand out and you want there to be sort of like a beat before the reader gets to it and then a beat after to digest it. Um, so I definitely do think about that stuff and I, I'm like kind of always cognizant of how a piece is flowing and, uh, I self edit as I go along. So like, I'm always going back and like reading my sentences over reading my paragraphs over and thinking about how it all flows together and not mm-hmm. just in terms of like the point that I'm getting across, but actually like how it sounds and how it looks and how it feels. Actually, I actually do the same thing, which is funny. I always, um, I had a very, one of the hardest things for me to learn was writing something and then going back and actually editing it again, just as a full thing, because I would self-edit as I went and I would write something and go, there's no mistakes in it. I've edited it as I went. I know there's nothing right. wrong with it. And then, you know, sometimes you miss things and whatever, but yeah, I, <laughs> I also had a tend to have a tendency to do that. Yeah. So, and again, like do, do some of these things take take you a long time to come up with like do you sit there being like okay i need a line here and i know it's going to be um it's going to be something something like this or something like that but i don't know exactly what it is yet or again you just kind of let it come organically and it's there in the flow and you whatever you come up with even if you kind of mess with it afterwards that's kind of what you stick with um yeah no not at all like i (laughs) Um, when, when I'm in a flow, like I need to just like keep going. Yeah. So if I get stuck on something, whether it's like an idea that's kind of, um, on the tip of my tongue and I can't quite express it or just a word that won't come to me, um, I will, and you know, my copy editors can tell you this cause they catch it all the time when I forget to circle back. Like I'll usually just write something or like something, 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 uh-huh. and then, and then move on. And, and circle back to it later. Um, and yeah, there are times that I just like, there, I, I leave some some things in there and then my copy editor will come to me and be like, is this what you meant to say here? <laughs> um, but yeah, like I'm very, uh, I'm like a rhythm writer, I guess. So if I, if I get stumped on something like that, it's just like, I need to, like, I need to keep moving. And, uh, and then I circle back to it and see kind of if, if something will come to me and if I can do something with it. Yeah, asterisks are my somethings. I leave them all over the place, and then I have to go back and kind of fill in whatever it was I meant to leave there. Right. Um, yeah, I do that a lot. Um, um, yeah, I was going to say, do you... Uh, so you mentioned about, like, 
kind of putting like a bunch of tidbits down and like um, so you you kind of have an arc in mind before you write something but like do you really outline or do you just sort of have uh, bits of stuff lying out and then you kind of fill it in uh, yeah, no, I do not outline. Um, I think my process would be a lot more streamlined and, and more efficient if I did, but it's just not really my process. And, uh, I've never really been able to do it. And if I did outline, like, I don't really think I would be able to stick to that outline. Mm-hmm. Uh, just because, yeah, it's not how I write. Like I'm, I'm digressive and like, I'll start down a, a track thinking I'm writing one thing and then end up kind of writing something else. Right. Uh, you know, like my headline is always sort of the last thing that I write. Like I, I very rarely go into a piece with a thesis of any kind. It's, I just sort of go with these loosely connected ideas, uh, that I try and pull together, like and connect to each other, but also I'm like, I'm trying to develop, you know, a unifying theme. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I want to have like a through line uh, or like a, you know, or like a recurring metaphor. And that stuff just, that's the kind of stuff that has to be organic to me. Um, and I can't, and, and I'm not, you know, obviously there's no right or wrong way to go about this. And I really wish I could do it in like a more organized way because uh, timing is always an issue with me. And I'm always sort of like, racing to meet my deadlines and sometimes missing them all together. But, uh, I just, um, yeah, I can't really write that way. Um, it's not, not how my brain works. Yeah. It's funny. You kind of, um, the way your process works, it sounds very akin to creative writing. <laughs> well, yeah, um, <laughs> that, uh, I mean, so I, I didn't like go to J school or anything like that. I was never, I never learned how to write like a journalist. I, um, I mean, I wrote like essays. I studied like English lit and all that. Oh, okay. Uh, I, Same background. And, um, yeah. So like for those essays, I could write an outline cause it was more just like, okay, like I'm going to have my intro graph and like, these are going to be my three sort of like main graphs and these are the points I'm going to touch on. Like that was easy to me, but I also, um, like I studied creative writing. Uh, I, I went to school like, and I was, I was studying fiction writing, uh, ah. in grad school. So it's just, um, definitely a completely different, uh, kind of writing and the, you know, a style that I guess I couldn't really ever unlearn. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you're very right to point that out. Uh, that's, that's sort of been how I've done my writing for the last, um, you know, seven or eight years. Yeah. I think it's one of the things that sticks out to me. Partly why I like to read your stuff is because it always felt like uh, kind of a kindred spirit in the way that your writing flows, because that's also my background is that I went to school for English lit and, uh, I wrote a book and I love writing fiction and um, that was kind of what I wanted to do before I knew that I was going to get into sports seriously and in sports journalism and so whenever I write something uh, it's it's often a little flowery it's it's often um, you know kind of reads like oh this this guy's uh he's not necessarily writing like a sports writer he's writing like like a fiction writer turned sports writer. I've had people tell me that before, but I think sometimes when you have all this stuff in your, in your background and in your brain, it kind of creates something that's unique and different and it sticks out. And, uh, it's, it's nice amongst a lot of things that can feel the same. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I didn't, uh, I didn't realize you'd written a book. How was that experience? <laughs> uh, I was very young. It was, it's a, uh, YA preteen novel. 
Um, I published it when I was 17. It was good. I had a small publishing party in my hometown of King Carden. It was a, it was a really cool experience. I, I like to think I've grown significantly as a writer since then. I don't go back and read it. I uh, can't lie. But uh, it was cool. Um, I haven't done that that since. I've done um, a bunch of other other stuff, got more into poetry and things like that. But uh, yeah, now obviously in sports journalism. So um, it, it's something that I, I always uh, appreciate, though, because it's a part of a part of uh, the process that got me here. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I feel the same. I just it's nice to have that background um, and and to just like have a different entry point, I guess, into this line of work. Uh, because I don't know. I mean, you, you never really want to be doing what everybody else is doing. Uh, and I think just having that background and like that education and the experience of like, I never finished writing a book, but like in grad school, I was working on a thesis that was basically a novel that I just never finished. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's like you, you find your voice, I think through that process and you find right. out what kind of writer you are and, you develop habits, I think, that stick with you. And so, you know, even something as simple as just like finding a place to throw in an aphorism mm -hmm. um, or, you know, using similes and metaphors, like uh, I don't think that that is something that I necessarily could have learned in any other environment. Um, and, and it took me like doing the kind of writing that I did in order to hammer that home and make it sort of second nature. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can... When I read your writing, I like I, my favorite thing is the way it flows. Um, even your lengthy sentences, they're smooth. Um, there's a very like visceral nature to it. Like you talked about, like how you like to make things pop, like picturesque. You can you can see the pictures of, in a description of your work. That's even even the innocuous stuff kind of sticks out. The way that some people will say that you know the ball bounced in the basket, but you're able to make it interesting, which is obviously um, important because I've talked about this before on this podcast, but even though, you know, sometimes people will talk about how you can get a little too flowery, which is true. And when people are doing storytelling, like just in general, people can, can get too flowery. Um, and I, and I definitely do it sometimes there's like, there's a balance right between that and substance in, in what you're trying to say. And, uh, I think finding that balance can sometimes be difficult, um, but I find that you manage it extremely well. So, like, was that something that was, was hard for you at the beginning? Or did, did you always find it to be, like, to be fairly easy to kind of rein yourself in? No, I mean, it's always a struggle. And I think the subject matter sort of dictates it in a lot of ways. Because there are pieces that I write that are, like, intensely analytical. And there just, like, isn't really room for the flowery stuff in those pieces. And I don't necessarily want it to be there. Like, obviously, you still want stuff to sound good and flow nicely. But... Mm -hmm you're more concerned with just sort of like getting a point across and uh, like, you know, the lead up to say like a GIF that is describing a play. Like you want to make sure that you're just explaining it in really clear terms. And so there is a distinction and, you know, I, I don't necessarily like one more than the other, but um, I do feel like, you know, when I write a piece like the Kawhi piece that I wrote, I get more of an opportunity to sort of um, uh, like use that, uh, sort of more like flowery prose and make it a little bit more emotional, which um, like that's another thing, I guess, with my writing and like just the way that I consume sports in general is like it's always on a very emotional level. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it's just I think it, it's just a lot of time dictated by the subject matter, but I'm constantly trying to self-edit and make sure that I'm not 
being like too verbose or like too um like uh i don't know just using hyperbole i guess yeah which i definitely have a tendency to do and i like i remember even in school uh one of my profs like he gave a bunch of us an assignment where he wanted to do something that would specifically challenge us to change how we wrote and his assignment for me was to like write a whole short story without using any adjectives oh wow um, and yeah so that was just that was eye-opening to me too and like now i'm sort of cognizant of that like am i using too many adjectives and hmm. i still probably do but it I, not not as many i guess as i otherwise would because i'm still trying to check myself a bit <laughs> yeah no I, that's a that's a very interesting assignment. I probably would have failed that assignment. I can't lie. I use adjectives so much. Sometimes I rely on them a little too much. But uh, how long? So how long did it take to, I guess, develop? You kind of mentioned before, but like develop your voice, your writing voice, to where it is now. Because I feel like, I mean, it's not one of those things that just like the older you get, the the more clear your voice is necessarily. I think it's the more you write and the more you read, the more clear your voice gets. Because early on, a lot of people, myself included, have a tendency to write like who they're reading. And you kind of realize when you're writing that you're just writing as a worse version of who you're reading. And that that's not, uh, you know, who you're eventually going to be. Who you're eventually going to be is some kind of weird amalgamation of all these things that have formed in your head. And then your own voice kind of peeks through. And there it is, your own kind of style. How long did that take to kind of come together for you? Um... Man, I I don't know. Uh, I guess I mean I'm 32, so 32 years. Uh, like it's just you know it's it's an ongoing process. But, yeah. Uh, I think like what you said is entirely correct. Like you just you pick stuff up from everywhere, and I think there are sort of stylistic things in my writing that I've picked up from novelists, but there's also jargon and you know, structural things that I've picked up just from like everyday basketball writers. Um, yeah. And so you're always sort of smashing all those things together. And even I'm sure without realizing it, like you're always, uh, you're always picking stuff up and, um, you know, sometimes a word will come to me that I just like hadn't considered before. And I don't necessarily know where it came from. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of that stuff, it just like came from reading something, um, or listening to something. And, uh, yeah, I think that's, you know, that's fine. That's a good thing, right? Like that's how yeah. these things go. Um, and that's how, um, you know, that's how this stuff gets packed along too. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, you write something and somebody else takes something out of it and like they add it to their own voice and like, um, it's all, it's kind of like a fishbowl, I guess, but uh, we're all learning from each other and borrowing from each other. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. I, I actually talked about this on my last podcast, but I'm curious to hear your answer to this. What uh, do you read outside of sports, the sports world, obviously, because, you know, we're, we're always reading sports content. Everyone and obviously in, who's in this industry needs to. It's part of their job and they're always doing it. But when you have the time also, cause I know obviously everyone's busy, but, um, what's the kind of stuff you like to go to, to read that, uh, kind of just like adds to everything we're talking about? Um, I don't really have like any kind of particular thing that I read. And like, 
I used to read a lot of books and I still try to, but I've just gotten so much worse at reading books. Um, <laughs> but, uh, like I really used to love just like intensely literary stuff and like, mm-hmm. uh, like prose stylists, like, like Tony Morrison is somebody that I always loved. Um, and like Nabokov, um, Marquez, like, uh, just like writers who could do things with language that I just hadn't even really ever considered possible before. Yeah. And that made me sort of almost just want to investigate and be like, how, how are they doing this? Like, how does this even work? Like you try and actually like figure out the machinery of like these sentences and these ideas that are being expressed in this particular way. Like, um, and there was a time when, you know, before I started writing myself, when I could just, um, kind of like read that stuff and enjoy it and let it wash over me. And, and once I started writing, it became a lot more difficult because, and I'm sure you can relate to this. Like you get to a point where you can no longer just enjoy something when it's really good because there's always sort of an element of like jealousy or a feeling of inadequacy baked into it also. Mm -hmm. And it almost like, I won't say it ruins the experience, but it just makes it more of a challenge. And you like, I tend to just read things way slower than I used to also, because when something like that jumps out to me, I do like go back and read it over again and just like marvel at the work that like the writer and the writing is doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would just say, I guess in, in general terms, literary fiction is, is the stuff that really gets me. Yeah, I definitely, uh, I definitely relate to that. There's, I think most writers are in some way, uh, insecure. Um, I think that's, I think that's a good thing in, in a lot of ways too, because it keeps a lot of writers are extremely humble and a very, uh, you know, th- that keeps them striving forward to improve their stuff. But like, there's also the element of you read something that's really good and maybe it's kind of similar to an idea you had, you had, <clears throat> especially in like the sports world. And then you suddenly are like, well, I'm not writing for five days now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, uh, I have that, uh, I've had that experience so many times with, um, uh, I don't know, a bunch of writers, but like, I don't know, pick one. Shout out Blake Murphy for sure, one of the guys I consider a mentor. But holy crap, that guy can write. And uh, you read some of his stuff, and he writes on everything. So you think about uh, some some idea, and then he's written on it. And I've learned that it's best for me to write whatever I'm going to say, and then read what Blake says because yeah. uh, you know he's he's so good at what he does. But yeah, I definitely definitely relate to what you're saying there. Yeah, no, I've, you have to do that, right? When you're writing about something and you see that somebody else, you know, and Blake's a great example, but like somebody you respect who's written on the same topic, I think definitely just like don't read it uh, until you're done writing your piece because reading it will either force you to like subconsciously emulate it in some way Mm, or it will force you to like very intentionally like veer away from that specific thing. And I think it's important to just write the thing that you were going to write and not let what someone else wrote necessarily affect that. And I think, um, yeah. So so I think like avoiding reading those stories until afterwards is usually a good idea. Um, but I had, so like, I don't know if you know, Louisa Thomas, her writing, um, she writes for the New Yorker now, but she writes, um, a lot about tennis. Okay. And, and so it was always a thing and I don't really cover tennis that much anymore, but I used to, um, and I used to like cover every major tennis tournament. Um, and, a few times I would have an idea for a story that I want to write and 
then I would see that like Louisa Thomas had written it and I would read it and I would just like, just got so, so angry because it was so good <laughs> and there was no possible way that I was going to be able to write the story that I wanted to write and have it measure up in any way. So I would just like scrap the idea altogether. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's constantly a challenge and you're always, you know, measuring yourself, I think against other writers and that's, that's part of the process. Yep. Pros and cons of the writing world. That's how it works. Um, keeps us going and slows us down sometimes, but that's kind of just how, how it is. Um, one last quick thing I wanted to ask you, cause you mentioned it. What was your novel in grad school going to be on? What was it about? <laughs> um, it was sort of broadly about um, Flint, Michigan, and it was just like I was writing it at a time that I had like a strange interest in that city, which I've never even been to. Um, but I had watched like uh, Roger and Me, which is like a Michael Moore documentary about the city, and um, I like Morris Peterson was sort of my favorite basketball player growing up, and I was interested right. in his history and like he was part of the Flintstones, like they won that national title at Michigan State, and I was interested in the basketball culture there, but also just the culture there in general and uh you know it's standing as this kind of like great post-industrial american city that was starting to die out and um there's just like a lot of things that i found super interesting about it and you know in hindsight now it's obviously um like that much more tragic and what's going on with that city um but i just like haven't and <laughs> i had never like returned to that novel i haven't looked at it in probably six years so <laughs> maybe one day I'll return to it and finish it. Um, and, uh, you know, everything that's going on there, maybe we'll factor in in some way, but, uh, like, like you said, you haven't gone back to read your novel. I, I'm kind of <laughs> too scared to go back and read what I wrote. Cause I think it'll be super embarrassing. Yeah. I, uh, I relate to that. I'm sure whatever you were starting was, uh, is much more, uh, profound than, uh, my topic of, uh, <laughs> YA <laughs> fantasy fiction, but, uh, uh, appreciate that. Uh, I want to thank you for coming on again, man. I, I, I really appreciate it. If you want to, listeners, if you want to read Joe's piece, again, it's on the score. You can go find it there. It's up now. Again, it is called Kawhi Leonard Leaves the Raptors in a Better Place Than He Found Them. And, yeah, is there anything you want to plug before we go here? Uh, no, I mean, you, I, yeah, I'll, I'll plug that piece. Um, and I have another piece up now that's, like, just about the thunder and, uh, like, the Russell Westbrook era that's seemingly coming to an end soon um you can follow me on twitter at joey underscore w uh and i post pretty much all my pieces there you can listen to pound the rock uh which is my nba podcast that i do with uh joe Cacharo. and um yeah that's about it awesome um uh, so you'll be able to uh find this podcast if you're listening to it on anchor you can obviously find it there that's where it originated it's called the writer's right podcast if you're looking for it if you have the app you can find it there as well the anchor website is anchor.fm you can also find it on apple podcasts if you listen to podcasts there uh the twitter uh twitter account for this podcast is writer's right pods you can find it there Uh, all the links to the episodes will be posted as well as links to my guest articles and until then, you can follow me at Howvolution on Twitter, and you can find my own online written work at Raptors Republic. Thank you for listening. Sure.